If you have your Bibles this morning, you can grab those and open them up to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today, and in the Lord's sovereignty on Mother's Day, our passage is about divorce. So it's just what the Lord had for us uh, today. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, we're going to be starting in verse 10 today, working our way through verse 16. Um, You can follow along as I read. This is what God's Word says. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, not, I'm sorry, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates... Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the voices in this room this morning testifying to your mercy and your grace and your love for us, that we can sing with confidence that you will keep us till the end, not because of our goodness, not because of our faithfulness, not because we're so much better than others, but Lord, in spite of all of that, in spite of the fact that we are wretched, we run from you, our heart is prone to wander, Lord, you keep us by your grace. And so, Lord, we cling to that truth this morning. Thank you. Thank you for your sovereign grace, which we will see in full when we meet you face to face. We will look back on our lives and see all of the ways in which you kept us, and we will praise you forever and ever. And so, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we just ask that you would be our teacher. Would you minister to us, God, in in a topic and in in an area that is um, filled with so many wounds, is a sensitive area for many of us, Lord. There are open wounds, And yet, Lord, we thank you that you are tender. Thank you that you are merciful. That a bruised reed you will not break. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be gracious to us today. And would you leave us, would you send us out of this place worshiping you? Not bent inward, focusing, obsessing on ourselves, Lord, but lifted with lifted eyes and lifted heads to see you. Would you help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, being different is kind of a cultural value these days, right? It's kind of, we're all kind of encouraged to find ways in which you are unique in your culture, ways in which you stand out. But being different for the wrong reasons can come with a lot of difficulty. I was, uh, surprisingly enough, I was in a band in high school. I know, it's shocking. Uh, I played the bass in high school. It It was a band with three other of my closest friends and 
Well, to be honest, uh, I just didn't want to be left out. So I said, can I be a part of your band? And they reluctantly said yes and handed me a bass. And they said, it's easy. It was not easy. All of my friends were really good musicians. They had good voices. They knew how to keep time. They knew how to read music. And here I was, the guy that just is holding a bass, trying to keep up. And it became very apparent and very obvious that I was different than all of them for all the wrong reasons. I was the one guy who was holding everybody back. Thankfully, I, I said something before they had to awkwardly approach me and say, hey, Nick, it's time. I realized this is bad. I'm holding all of you back. And I stepped out of the band. They broke up a few months later. I don't know. Maybe I was, maybe I was the glue. Who knows? But being different for all of the wrong reasons can come with a lot of difficulty. Maybe, maybe you've experienced this being able to, not being able to afford certain things when it seems like everybody else has those things. Or maybe for you, you, it's been seeing everyone else experience some kind of companionship and you feel lonely. There's a myriad of ways in which we can ex experience being different for all of the wrong reasons. In the city of Corinth, which this letter was written, every single Christian in this city experienced being different as an inescapable reality. There was no getting around the fact that if you were a Christian in the city of Corinth, you were different. But it wasn't just because of some set of circumstances that were going on in your life. This was an intentional choice to be different. It was an intentional choice to follow Jesus as the one and only God. To ascribe to the exclusive claims of Christ. To say there is no other God but me. Every other God is a God made with hands. It cannot see, it cannot hear. Jesus Christ is the only true and living God. To decide to follow Jesus and believe that was to be different for all the wrong reasons culturally. And it came with a lot of difficulty. It wasn't culturally celebrated. It was mocked and it was scorned. In fact, in one ancient city, the city of Smyrna, which is not too far away from the city of Corinth, just across the Aegean Sea, if you're looking at a map today, in modern-day in modern Turkey, there was a city called Smyrna. And Smyrna was unique because all, their, their whole workforce operated with a guild system, which means you couldn't get a job unless you were part of the guild. But in order to be a part of the guild, you had to worship the emperor of Rome. You had to offer him sacrifices. You had to pledge allegiance to him devotion to him at all costs. You had to say he was the one true God and Savior of all mankind. And so Christians were faced with a dilemma. I can either follow Jesus and not be able to get a job, or I can worship the emperor and get into the guild and be able to provide for my family. And so Christians in this city, they were very poor because they could barely work. All because they followed Jesus all because they were different for all of the wrong reasons culturally. Being a Christian means doing things differently. Even when they're really, really difficult. And as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is talking about marriage. And marriage is really, really hard. It's very difficult. And he's writing to Christians to say, you Christians are called to do marriage differently. And what he says here is you are called to stick it out, to not pursue divorce, precisely because you now follow Jesus. Because you're a Christian, don't pursue divorce. 
not, not because divorce is painful and it comes with all of these ramifications in your life, though those things may be true, but the primary reason, he writes, is to say this, you are a Christian now, so don't pursue this. Don't pursue divorce, even when it's hard, even when it's exhausting, even when it's difficult. And this presses on us in our, with our cultural lenses in 2023 because in our context, divorce is not just common, it's often celebrated. This morning, as we come to this text, we must be willing to consider that maybe being a Christian means I do this differently. Maybe being a Christian means I view marriage differently. Whether you are single this morning or whether you are married or whether you're divorced or somewhere on that spectrum. Paul's going to call us this morning not to pursue divorce and wrapped up in that are some inherent commands to tend to marriages. And so he begins by talking about this. He first begins by addressing Christian couples. So husbands and wives that are both believers, he begins by addressing that household to say, tend to your marriage. Tend to your marriage for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, look at what he says in verse 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. And the subsequent command under that the husband should not divorce his wife. You see, divorces were really common in Corinth. Something that we can relate with, with the city of Corinth, right? Divorce was everywhere. It happened all the time. And in the Greco-Roman world, you could get a certificate of divorce. You could legalize divorce with certain documents. But more often it happened to where one of the spouses would just leave. And that was considered, in effect, an actual divorce, even without the documents. It was inst- instantaneously effective the moment one party said, I don't want to have anything to do with this marriage anymore. Culturally, the way it would often work is if it was the woman that wanted the divorce, she would just leave. And if it was the husband that wanted the divorce, he would send his wife away. And so this just happened all over the place. Marriage was not easy in the first century. In fact, most of the marriages were arranged marriages, not caught up in the kind of love story that we may find today. They were arranged marriages, which means one of the highest goals within marriage was simply to just have harmony and peace. It was so commonplace, as it is in our context, too, where we have no-fault divorce happening at all times every day. And so marriage was, or, uh, divorce was a problem in the city of Corinth, even among the Christians, because some of the Christians were elevating, as we've been seeing in the previous um, few verses, they were elevating celibacy as some kind of high spiritual um, status, that if you were celibate, you were truly being spiritual because you didn't have to give in to the desires of the flesh. And they had a wrong understanding of the body and the spirit, saying that everything that's spiritual is good and everything that's bodily is, is lowly and wrong and, and sinful. So if we can separate ourselves from our desires and just focus on what's spiritual, we'll be better off. And so even the Christians were falling into this wrong thinking that they needed to now be, even as married folk, celibate, which was leading to divorces. Still some, maybe just like today, were just simply unsatisfied, could not get along, and there could be no harmony and peace, and so they were divorcing. And so Paul, in this section, is turning to those Christian couples who are unhappy in marriage for whatever reason. To say, some of you I know are discouraged and unsatisfied. Some of you are doubting your marriage could ever have peace or harmony or be vibrant. 
Some of you are believing divorce might just be the thing that will bring freedom and healing. Maybe some of us here this morning are feeling that same way. And Paul is saying, don't buy it. Don't buy the narrative that says, pursuing this will be the thing that truly brings me what I need most. He's saying, don't buy it. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity of of reading through a list of reviews of a product on a website. We've all done this, right? I'm in the market for a new barbecue, and so I've been researching the internet, scouring it, reading all these different reviews. And, um, you know, we're used to reading bad reviews on something, right? We come across them, you're like, you know what? You know there's going to be a bunch of five-star reviews and then like a decent amount of one-star reviews because people are just kind of petty and they like to complain, right? And so I'm reading through a bunch of these reviews, and one bad review really caught my eye as I was looking at barbecues because it began by saying this, don't ignore all the one-star reviews, for whatever reason, that like stopped me in my tracks. Because like I'm reading all these one-star reviews and I'm literally doing that. I'm like, yeah, whatever. They're just weird. They just have weirdly high standards. They used it wrong. And like I'm ignoring all the one-star reviews until I come across this one, which says, don't ignore them. They're all right. And I, I've stopped researching that barbecue. That worked for me, all right? Paul is writing to say, don't, don't buy it. Don't buy the lie that pursuing this divorce is going to be the thing that brings you what you really need in life. Pay attention to the biblical instruction and don't buy this. That's what he's saying. Because the truth is, there is a strand of hope in most divorces that things will be better if I can be free. Things will be better if I can be free. And the Corinthians were believing that. They were wrongly believing that freedom from marriage would bring them what they need most. So as he writes to Christian couples, he writes to them to tell them not to separate. And caught up in that command is to do the opposite. It is to tend to your marriage for the sake of the gospel. We tend to our marriages as couples this morning, as Christian couples, is first by this. You tend to your marriage by knowing why it exists. You tend to your marriage by knowing why it exists. Marriage is not just whatever we want it to be. It isn't. No one can really operate that way. We're operating in cultural times where the definition of things is often shifting and changing from year to year. That is so difficult to do. Imagine um, trying to be in a conversation with somebody, maybe in your business place, giving giving a presentation about something, and every time you use a word, you get notified that the definition of that word has now changed. You would run into a lot of difficulty trying to navigate, how do I talk to somebody? How do I pitch an idea and present something if all of the definitions and ideas I'm using, you keep telling me that the definition's changing? It would drive you nuts. And yet in many ways, that's happening as we talk about marriage. But when we look at the scriptures, we have to be confronted with the fact that marriage is not just whatever we want it to be. It is what God says it is because he is the author and creator and designer of it. So if we're going to tend to our marriages, we have to know why they exist. Because Paul is assuming a lot of things here about marriage. In fact, when he says here in verse 10, I give you this charge, not I, but the Lord, what he's saying there is Jesus has talked about this already about not pursuing divorce. He's leaning on the commands of Jesus, assuming his audience knows them. So we need to familiarize ourselves with those things because maybe some of us might not know exactly what he's referring to. Look back with me at Mark chapter 10, where Jesus lays out for us essentially what marriage is. In Mark 10, starting in verse two, listen to this conversation. The Pharisees, or religious leaders, came up to Jesus in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, 
Well, what did Moses command you? What, what, is, what does the law say in the Old Testament? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to him, them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, and this is a quote from Genesis chapter 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And whatever God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. When Jesus is asked about divorce, he says, let me tell you about marriage. Marriage is God's design. It is God's union. And from the beginning, divorce has never been a part of the design of God. God has designed a man and a woman to be brought together in union permanently, lifelong, exclusively together. What God has brought together, let not man separate. So God's definition of marriage is to bring man and wife together in a covenant union for the rest of their lives. Divorce wasn't part of the original design of God. In fact, Jesus says a few words here that we'll get into later, that he who divorces their spouse and marries another commits adultery. Ephesians chapter 5, we see this same writer to the, to the Corinthians write about marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, they give us a, a beautiful picture for why it exists, that marriage is not simply just God's union, but it is God's union to show and model something very specific. And it's, namely, it's this, the gospel. Jesus' love and affection for his church, for his people. Listen to this description in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. You can see similar verses quoted by Paul than as, as Jesus does. To say marriage is God's idea. It's God's design. It's not up to our opinion or our changing definitions. This is something that belongs to the Lord as creator. He has created and designed marriage this way to reflect the gospel to the world. Within the roles that a husband and a wife play in a marriage, it is to reflect the way in which Christ loves the church and the church responds to the love of Christ. 
This is the purpose of marriage. Most fundamentally, it is the purpose of marriage. And so we tend to our marriages by knowing that is their purpose. That's why they exist, to show this reality. And we also tend to our marriages by actually displaying this gospel. First and foremost, husbands and wives displaying the gospel to one another. You are to show your spouse the gospel. That is your primary goal in your marriage. At least biblically it should be. It is not just to be infatuated and in love and committed to one another. Not, not, not just that in a vacuum. But everything you do within a marriage relationship, the spouses are to be showing one another the love of Christ and love for Christ. It's to tend to each other. I will say this. My, the most potent gospel preaching I've ever heard has come from my wife. Not from her opening her mouth to proclaim the gospel, but her modeling it to me in her forgiveness. In the things she's forgiven me for that I thought there's no way, she has shown me the love of Christ. I have come to taste and see the goodness of God's forgiveness and grace towards me through my spouse. This is what spouses are to do for one another. And most fundamentally, you show your spouse the gospel by not leaving. Because the promise of the gospel is that Jesus said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will forgive your sins. Nothing will separate you from my love forever and ever. And in our marriages, by staying and not leaving, we say to one another, we believe that that's true about Jesus. Therefore, I commit myself to you and I won't leave. Most fundamentally, that's what we're saying in a marriage. You show your spouse the gospel by not leaving and by not sending them away. But you not only show your spouse the gospel within marriage, you show everyone else the gospel. You show all of us how Christian marriages should look different. I don't know if you've ever watched uh, that show Shark Tank before. Shark Tank is a show where uh, different uh, creators and uh, just really smart people making new products, starting new businesses, they come to a bunch of millionaire, probably billionaire people and say, here's my company and you should invest in it. I need your money. And every single episode, the basic question is this, what makes you and your product different than everybody else? Right? So when they come to the, the, the investors and they're coming with a, with a new line of, of button-up t-shirts, the question is, I've seen a million t-shirts, what makes yours different? What makes your new butter knife that you created and some business you formed around it different than all the other butter knives I've used? You see, being a Christian within marriage, we are saying that it's supposed to be different. Is it though? Does it look any different? When the church looks at marriages within its church, do they look different than the marriages outside? And those outside the church looking at marriages within inside the church, do they look different? They should, because they're supposed to be showing the gospel. Now, we, a lot of us, here, here's the thing, we, we've been told that Christians divorce is the same high rate as non-Christian. We've been told that stat for years and years and years, and the truth is, is that's actually not true. 
Barna, who's a, who's a great research firm, they, they do studies on all sorts of things. They looked into these numbers, and here's what they found. Among active churchgoers, right? So these are, these are people that say, I, I not only identify as a Christian on a survey, but in my life, I actively participate in being the body of Christ. Active churchgoers had a 27 to 50% lower rate of divorce. So that, that, that actually tells us that there is something different happening within Christian marriages. Ironically enough, nominal Christians, so the people that would say they're Christians but not actually participate in being an active member of the body of Christ, actually showed a 20% higher likelihood of getting divorced than just your general population. Christian marriages should look different. In fact, many of them are looking different. But here's the truth. If you find yourself as a Christian spouse married to another Christian spouse this morning, you need to remember this. You have the gospel power to have a different kind of marriage than everybody else. You do. It's not because you're so much better. It's not because you have a better connection. It has nothing to do with that. It is because you have the power of Christ and the good news of his body broken and shed on the cross and, and you and your spouse both believe in that. Both believe that you have nothing unless you have Christ. Both believe that you are wretched sinners apart from the mercy of Christ. You two have come together in union and you have a gospel power to have a different kind of marriage. And we need you to show us. We need you to show us the gospel and how you talk to each other and how you talk about each other. We need you to show us the gospel and how you serve each other and how you pursue each other and how you confess your sins to one another and forgive each other. We need you to show us the gospel and how you follow Jesus together. It's not just non-Christians that need to see the gospel. Christians need to see it too. It will increase our faith and delight in the gospel when we see it within your marriage. So tend to it. Keep going. Keep loving because Christ loves you. And what Christ has brought together, let no man separate. Still, Paul is realistic that divorce happens. He even addresses it here in verse 11. He says, The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Paul is realistic that divorce happens. In fact, when we read the scriptures, there, now there's lots of debate and discussion about this, but there, do, there does seem to be a biblical precedent for sometimes divorce to happen. Jesus will we'll reference it in Matthew chapter 5. We'll get to that in just a second. But, but what do we do if you find yourself in that place? I've been divorced. I'm separated from my, from my spouse. Now what do I do? Well, Paul says it very clearly here, essentially telling you this, surrender your marriage to the Lord for the sake of Christ. So if the address was to the Christian marriages, was to say, tend to your marriages for the sake of the gospel. To those that find themselves divorced, he says, surrender your marriage to the Lord for the sake of Christ. And he gives two options. He says, one, you should pursue reconciliation. If you find yourself divorced this morning, the scriptures say, pursue reconciliation. Why? Why does it say that? Because reconciliation is the story for every Christian. 
It is the norm for us, or at least it should be. Our entire identity is wrapped up in this idea that we were separated from God, we wronged Him, we sinned against Him, we were enemies with Him, and yet God pursued reconciliation with us, took us who were far off and brought us near. It was unimaginable, it was unlikely, and yet God did that. That is our story. It should be what governs all of our relationships, including our marriages. And so if you find yourself, like Paul says here, divorced or separated from your spouse, pursue reconciliation with them because this is our story. As a Christian, you have the power to reconcile through the gospel. I understand that in the world, that's not the norm. And it's often unlikely that that happens. We need to remember that because of the gospel, that's not impossible. But the option number two that Paul gives here is to remain unmarried, which goes back to exactly what we talked about last week, to follow Christ in celibate singleness for the glory of God, to remain unmarried. Now, this is very culturally unpopular, but look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the one place in Scripture where we see Jesus give an exception to divorce and remarriage when it's on the grounds of sexual immorality. We could talk about this a lot. There's lots of different positions on this, but we even see in the Old Testament scriptures the, the Lord God using the idea of unfaithfulness, breaking the covenant that Israel would do towards the Lord as a way of saying, when, when you cheated on me and you were sexually unfaithful, whoring after other gods, you broke the marriage covenant between me and you, but I'm more faithful than you. And so God pursued reconciliation But here we see even from Jesus, divorce happens. Even though it's not God's intentional design from the beginning, divorce happens. But the greater concern in Scripture, beyond even divorce, is adultery. That is the greater concern of Paul here in 1 Corinthians. It's the even greater concern here in Matthew chapter 5 from the mouth of Jesus. That adultery after divorce is even worse which means remarriage without biblical precedent is adultery. And this is an area where many of us within the church have just turned a blind eye because we say, this is awkward. It seems to infringe on a lot of personal boundaries, so we'll just ignore it. But the scriptures seem to be really clear about this. Remarriage without biblical precedent is adultery. And so Paul says here, if you find yourself unmarried, or divorce, pursue reconciliation, or remain unmarried. You say, well, that's not fair. You say, well, well, that doesn't give me much, much say over my own life. What happens when someone in this place decides to stay in one of those two options, what you're essentially saying is this. You are showing us the authority of Christ. You are affirming the authority of Christ. We live in a culture that is very anti-authority. 
We are in a culture that says power is almost inherently wrong and evil. We are called within a culture to say that the the true cultural value is to be willing to defy authority and to speak truth to those that are in power because those that have power and authority are wrong. But, uh, But someone in this situation affirms the authority of Christ as inherently good to say, Jesus is different. Sure, are there lots of abusive authority figures and power structures? Sure, but Jesus is good and his authority is for my good in my life. To remain in this place is to hold before yourself and before everyone else the authority of Christ is good. Even when it infringes on things that I might want, I'll submit to the authority of Christ. It also affirms the sufficiency of Christ. To say, even in the midst of my sorrow and maybe even my loneliness, I recognize that Christ is enough for me. That I'm willing to do something hard and different and difficult. It's important to remember this. Even though culturally within the church we've been told that divorce is about as bad as it gets when we read the scripture, we're reminded divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Absolutely not. There is more grace in Christ for that. We also know this, that unbiblical remarriage, meaning adultery, is also not the unforgivable sin. God's grace covers any sin that we bring to him. Yes? Amen? Is that true? Do we believe that? Yes. There is no sin where we can, we can, we can out-sin the coverage of God's grace. The only unforgivable sin listed in Scripture is the rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because we are saying, I don't want your forgiveness. I refuse it. Therefore, you will receive the due penalty of your sins. But for all that will come to Christ, there will be grace. There will be forgiveness. Thirdly, Paul addresses mixed marriages because people were becoming Christians, right? As they're preaching the gospel, there are people that are becoming Christians. That's actually happening. It should be happening. As the gospel is proclaimed, people are getting saved. They're putting their faith in Christ. And now all of a sudden, there would be marriages that found themselves with a whole lot of tension because one spouse is now a Christian and the other one is not. Now what do we do? All that stuff you said about Christian marriages, we don't share that. What are we supposed to do here now? The instruction that Paul gives to mixed marriages is this, maintain your marriages. And he's speaking to the believer because the believer would be reading and hearing his letter. Maintain your marriage for the sake of the unbeliever. Maintain your marriage. You see, the Corinthians were concerned about being defiled. Right, the, the Christians were, were, were concerned about being defiled with things that were not Christian. And so as they came to their marriages and found that I'm now a Christian, well, what, what do I do? Is it better that I just get divorced? Maybe I should get divorced and get married to a Christian. Maybe, is that, is that what's, what's good and right and what God desires for me to do? What, what do we do here, Paul? Now, there was a tremendous amount of difficulty in a mixed marriage in Corinth. Now, there's a tremendous amount of difficulty today, but understand this, that, that culturally it was very, very difficult. This was a, a culture that was set up on worshiping the gods. And here's what a, a first century philosopher said. His name is Plutarch. In a, in, a, in, a, in a little piece that he has called this, Advice to the Bride and Groom. 
So this would have been commonplace culture and knowledge. Listen to what he says. A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. So this is the common cultural wisdom of the day, that a wife is to simply only have the friends her husband has, and the most important friends are the gods. So only believe the gods your husband believes in and shut the door to anything else. Wife becomes a Christian. Uh Uh-oh, now what? It's betrayal. It is received as of the authority of the husband. Now there's great tension within this marriage. Culturally, it would have made sense to separate. Paul is pressing against that to say Christian marriages are different even when there's just one believer in the home. Maintain it. Even when it doesn't make any sense culturally, pursue it, maintain it, keep it going. Even though it's really, really awkward, even though there's a lot of tension, even though one spouse might not have any idea what to do with the other, maintain the marriage. There would have been an enormous amount of pressure on these marriages. And of course, that remains today in marriages that are mixed. There is absolutely deep practical tension, possibly practical tension, between a husband and a wife where one is a Christian and the other is not. Because there's a difference in values. The values that the husband and wife shared together when they got married and were both not Christians are now different than the way they are when one has become a Christian. Values have changed, and that becomes really difficult to do relationship. Parenting becomes difficult. We now value different things. We want different things for our children. We, we, we may even teach them different wisdom and different norms and different values. Money becomes a source of tension. How do we spend our money? The Lord calls us to be generous as Christians. Well, but if, if, I, if this spouse doesn't share that same value, now what do we do with our money? And we all know how awkward money gets. It's hard. There's, there's tension in, in money. There's tension in, in, in what we would consume. Culturally, consuming different foods. We're going to get to that in the next chapter. Even today, uh, uh, con- consuming different content. You might have all of a sudden a changing value in what you watch and what you listen to and what you read. Parties you go to, things you experience. Your your very rubric for making decisions has now entirely changed once you become a Christian. There there is almost no area within a relationship that is not untouched by this to bring tension, let alone relational tension, where there may be a lack of unity on things that feel like the deepest and most important realities. Paul is not oblivious to the fact that this would have been really, really hard to receive to say, maintain your marriage. But he says, maintain your marriage because it's holy. This is where he goes in the rest of the section here in verses 12 through 16. And when he says in verse 12, to the rest, to the mixed marriages, I, I say this and not the Lord, he's not saying that this isn't a command. He's not saying that uh, he doesn't speak with the authority of the Lord. He's simply saying this, the situation I'm addressing falls outside of the category that Jesus addressed when he was on earth. So it's me speaking. But Paul still knows he carries the authority as an apostle of Christ to still give us commands. And he says, maintain your marriage because it's holy. Right, he says, 
An unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and vice versa. Mixed marriages have the same status as Christian marriages. They are both picturing what God designed and ordained. And he uses this example of children in verse 14. He says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. He's using an example to say, none of you would cast off the children of your mixed marriage off and away forever as if they're unclean. Just because one, one spouse is a Christian and the other isn't, the same applies to your spouse. You see, there's a, there's a likelihood that, that many of the Christians in Corinth took Paul's instruction from chapter five where he said, do not associate with the sexually immoral. Remember when he said this? He said, I told you not to, not to associate with the sexually immoral. Not meaning the sexually immoral of this world, but the, bear, the one that bears the name Christian brother and still walks in unrepentant sexual sin. That's the one you're to separate from. There's some that might have misunderstood what Paul was saying there. To mean, I don't want to be defiled by a non-Christian by being in, in marital relationships with them. Maybe I should just separate myself and divorce because I don't want to be defiled by their presence. And Paul says, no, it's the exact opposite. It is not the Christian who is defiled by the unbelieving spouse. It is the unbelieving spouse who benefits holy and sanctifies the believing spouse. Exact opposite. Maintain, because your presence as a follower of Jesus in your home and in your marriage reaps benefit for the whole home. It doesn't mean that that spouse is automatically saved in that sense being holy, but is reaping the blessings and the benefits of their spouse having fellowship with the Lord. It brings goodness to the home. It brings tremendous blessing in the relationships in the home. So he says, maintain your marriage because it's, it's holy. It's ordained by the Lord. It's set apart by him. But also maintain your marriage because you're called to peace. You can imagine how easy it would have been for a Christian spouse to stir up controversy, controversy and division within the home and within the marriage. And Paul's writing to say, you're called to peace as much as you can, as he says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It still might lead to the unbelieving spouse leaving. And Paul says, in that sense, let it be so. He says, in such cases, a brother and sister is not enslaved. Meaning, I think what he means there is they're free to change status from married to unmarried. I don't think Paul is speaking here about the freedom to to remarry. I don't think he's just even thinking about that or addressing that in this category. We'd have to lean on some other scriptures if we're gonna start to discuss that together. But I think he's simply saying you are free from the bonds of marriage. You are free to now change your status from married to unmarried, to divorced. But most importantly, he says, maintain your marriage because it might lead to salvation. It might lead to salvation. You know, you often hear sometimes culturally that the key key to marriage is compromise. You ever heard this before? Maybe you've said it before, so if you did, I'm sorry. Uh, but the key to marriage is not compromise. But w- w- why, we, why, we, why we think compromise is good is because each person gives equally, sacrifices equally. But compromise is not the key to marriage. Sacrifice is. Sacrifice is saying, I will give up far more than you for your sake. And when both do that, that's a wonderful relationship. Paul is saying to Christian spouses, sacrifice for the sake of the unbeliever in your home. Because Christ 
has done exactly that for you. Christ pursued you and loved you while you were far off. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. You say, how can I do that? First and foremost, because of Christ's love for you. Because of the gospel, the believing spouse can suffer, can bear the weight of the tension, can bear the weight of the sacrifice for the sake of the other. Precisely because Christ endured the cross for you, if you find yourself there this morning. Even if it's lifelong. Because Christ is long suffering. That is a marker of who he is. He is long suffering. As 2 Peter 3 would say, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus is long-suffering, therefore, believing spouse, you can be too. Because he is that way towards you. It's not just Christ's love for you, but it's Christ's power in you that can also help you do this, that can help you suffer in these things because Christ provides for you, which means you can endure everything from awkwardness to scorn in your home. You can patiently endure for the good of your spouse also because of Christ's gospel through you, you can do this. See, there may not be a greater witness to the gospel than you if you find yourself in this place. Not just through your actions, though, also through your words. It's also, there's a temptation often as Christians, the closer we get to know someone, the less we actually speak the gospel to them and think, I'll just show it to them. Showing is valuable, but speaking is necessary. We need to open our mouths and talk about Jesus. You may be, there may be no greater witness to the gospel than you within your home. Why does Paul call all of us to this? Why does he say all these things about marriage? Well, I think what he's trying to do first and foremost is hold up for us a wondrous Savior. A wondrous Savior. So that we might say, because of Jesus, I tend to my marriage even when it is super, super hard. Because of Jesus, I love and I serve my spouse until the day that I die, pleading for them to know Christ. And I love them genuinely, even when it's difficult. Doing marriage God's way is really, really hard. Why do we do such hard things? to show how wonderful Christ is. That's why we do that. Why are we willing to do things differently for all the wrong reasons? Is to show everyone, Christians and non-Christians, that Jesus is worth it. There's no one like him. In fact, that very city that I told you about at the beginning, that city of Smyrna, a contemporary to, to, to Corinth, became a hotbed for persecution one of the very first elders of the church in Smyrna, you may have heard his name, his name is Polycarp. He was a disciple of the apostle John, probably installed as an elder in that church by John. He became so hated by the Roman Empire, they came and found him and they came looking for him and they put him to death. And when they brought him out to the middle of the city to, to burn him, they told him, renounce Jesus. And here's what he said, 
86 years I've been his servant. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Bring on whatever you'd like. Why do we do hard things? Is to show that Christ is better. Whether it's marriage, whether it's relationships, whether it's laying down our lives to show Jesus is better. Let's pray together.